Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sarah Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sarah Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sarah Davison. Welcome back to the show. Now, today, my guest is Sam Vaknin. Now, some of you may have heard of Sam Vaknin because he's a very well-known author of a book called Malignant Self-Love, Narcissism Revisited, as well as many other books and e-books. Now, I am very excited to have Sam Vaknin as my guest because I believe he shows and gives a really empowering insight into what a narcissist is and how narcissists think. But I do want to let you know before you dive into this episode that if you are suffering or struggling from an abusive or toxic relationship, there may be parts of this interview that may upset you in some way. So please be aware of that before you listen. Make sure you have a good support team around you. If it does upset you, do jump on one of our Heartbreak Happiness online support groups for support. The reason I'm bringing this to you is because I really think Sam is a real font of knowledge as he has been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. So he's speaking from a very different angle to people like me, for example, and some of my guests that I've had on over the years with this podcast. So it is a different angle. It's an insightful angle. I think clarity gives us power. And there's certainly a lot of clarity that Sam brings from his opinion and his beliefs. So please take notes. Do know that there might be parts that are upsetting, but on the whole, I think you'll find it empowering when you understand exactly some of these details, which I know for me resonated during the interview, but also I'm hoping will resonate for you in a way that gives you some strength to know that this isn't about you and that you can get through this stronger and come out happier at the other side. So with that said, I am super excited to welcome Sam Vatman to the show. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. I feel welcome. It's been three or four years. We haven't seen each other. I know. I know. And that was a great event we did together at Burbank mm-hmm. University with also the amazing Richard Grannon. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that it got a lot of views on your YouTube channel and Richard's over a million, I think. So, I mean, that was quite an amazing event. I am so excited, Sam, and thank you so much. I know you're super busy and you travel the world. And you're No, all... thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, so thank you. So let's get stuck in. So tell us... I'm at your, you... I'm at your disposal to terrorize your viewers, so... <laughs> <laughs> that way. On, everyone. Strap yourselves in. This yeah. is going to be a ride. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, Sam, let's... Let's put our listeners in, in the picture. Tell, tell them a bit about you and, and the work that you've done, because you've achieved so much. In the 1990s, I coined the phrase narcissistic abuse, and I was the first to out myself as a diagnosed narcissist. I've been diagnosed twice with narcissistic personality disorder. And so I was the first to, to I was the first person, I think, in, in history, actually, to self-identify as a diagnosed narcissist. Wow. That was in the 90s, which was a very long time ago. You were a kid, if I'm judging correctly. Yes. (laughs) And so there was no one else there. And for 10 years, I've been the only voice on narcissism online. 
I ran all the support groups and I, I maintained the only website. However, this creates, created a lot of dissonance among my viewers and listeners and readers and so on, because I am a narcissist and they couldn't reconcile the fact that I was able to help them and I was helping them. I've been very helpful and supportive. They couldn't reconcile this with the fact that I'm, I'm the bad guy, I'm the abuser. This created a lot of, of cognitive dissonance. And so 10 years late, 10 years after I started my work, there was a second generation and now there's a fifth or sixth generation of people and narcissism became a buzzword, a keyword, an organizing principle of reality. I'm hard pressed to come across any movie or any book without a mention of narcissism in some capacity or another. I'm a professor of psychology and I'm the author of the first book about narcissistic abuse, Malignant Self-Love, Narcissism Revisited. And I'm not as evil as I look, probably much more. <laughs> oh, oh, chilling words, chilling words. So, I mean, I find that there's a lot of people who have jumped on that using the word narcissist bandwagon. And, and obviously I, I train people to become coaches um, but I always say to my coach, so stay in your lane. We're not psychologists. You know, we're not psychiatrists. We're not there to label and diagnose people. So I always encourage my coaches as coaches to stay away from that word narcissist. Um, we talk more about toxic relationships and abuse. But can you define what you mean by narcissist? Because as you said, it's become a buzzword now. Is it the same meaning that you see on the YouTube videos these days? There's a general rape of language. People are abusing and misusing words which have very strict clinical definitions. For example, gaslighting. For example, narcissism. And so everything, with very few exceptions, everything online is mistaken. Everything online misuses or wrongly uses uh, terminology and phraseology, which is has been defined in clinical literature decades ago. And when I say everything, I'm every, everything I mean everything. There's, there's, there are almost no exceptions. And so narcissism is a phase in personal development in early childhood. In every human being's development, there's a narcissistic phase. It's called primary narcissism. It's when the child becomes highly self-centered, dis discovers himself or herself as a separate entity, as not mommy. When the child takes on the world, and to take on the world when you're 18 months old, you need to be seriously grandiose. You know? When the child introverts, directs emotional and other types of energy inwards in a process called introversion, and then by directing this emotional energy, cathexis, inwards, the child is actually able to create what we call today the self. And the child forms boundaries. This is healthy narcissism and it survives, it survives to adulthood until the very last day, your very last day, you have healthy narcissism. It underlies your self-esteem and self-confidence, ability to self-regulate, object relations, interactions with other people, setting boundaries. It is all reliant on healthy narcissism. But narcissism evolves with time. And if it doesn't, if it remains infantile, when you're an adult, 
then what you have is pathological or secondary narcissism. And this is what people refer to online. Only they don't make the distinction between healthy and, and sick, the, the malignant variant. And as I said, similarly, there, there's a lot of abuse of words like gaslighting and the distinction between psychopath and narcissist. I mean, it's a bloody mess. <laughs> the yeah. online community is a bloody mess. Not to mention, not to mention self-aggrandizing constructs like empaths and super empaths and, and I know what. Yeah, and that's what I find. And also I find that there's a lot of emotion and drama that's sort of swept up into this. So, so maybe you can help us distill that. I mean, you talked about psychopaths and narcissists. Can you explain to us the difference there? There are, there are massive differences. There are many self-styled experts online, including with academic degrees, but with no credentials in the field of narcissism. So they have a PhD in psychology, but they did no work in narcissism ever. And so these people keep saying that all psychopaths are narcissists, which is utter unmitigated rubbish. Narcissists and psychopaths and borderlines and many other mental health disorders, such as, for example, bipolar disorder, they all have grandiosity. They're all grandiose. But to be grandiose doesn't mean that you're a narcissist. It's a necessary but not a sufficient condition. So psychopaths are grandiose and narcissists are grandiose, but that's where the similarity ends. The trajectory of the development of psychopathy in childhood and adolescence and the development of narcissism very dissimilar. And the reason is psychopathy is probably a brain abnormality. The brains of psychopaths are not the same as the brains of narcissists or healthy people. That's the first distinguishing feature. The second one is psychopaths don't need people. They don't need people at all. The narcissist is dependent on other people for narcissistic supply. The narcissist needs and craves and solicits attention from other people in order to regulate his internal world, especially his sense of self-worth. The psychopath couldn't care less. He's utterly oblivious to the existence of other people. As far as he's concerned, they're mere objects. And he doesn't want or need or solicit or ask them for anything. He just uses them and, and discards them contemptuously and offendedly and very, in a very rapid succession. The third thing that distinguishes psychopaths from, from narcissists is the profile of the psychopath. The psychopath is antisocial. And for example, many psychopaths become criminals. The narcissist is pro-social. The narcissist needs to work with other people in order to obtain supply. How on earth are you going to obtain supply from people if you antagonize them, if you alienate them, if you make them enemies, if you victimize them, if you... That's not the way to obtain supply. So narcissists are heavily dependent on other people. They're pro-social. The psychopath is also reckless. He's, he's a risk taker. He's a thrill seeker and a novelty seeker. These are qualities that are not characteristic of narcissists. Psychopaths are manipulative. For example, psychopaths gaslight and lie, not narcissists. Narcissists confabulate. Narcissism is a fantasy defense. The narcissist believes his own stories, his own narratives, and his own lies. He believes them. He lives inside the fantasy. He inhabits it. 
the psychopath knows that he's lying to you. He knows that he's manipulating you. It's premeditated. He knows he's gaslighting you. He knows that he's causing you to doubt your own, your own sanity and ability to gauge reality and to judge it properly. Now, the psychopath does it on purpose. The narcissist may do the very same things, but it's because he believes his own, his own nonsense. He believes his own fantasy. He, he actually... Okay. And this the last thing, just one last thing with your permission, the psychopath is goal-oriented. He wants money and sex and power and what have you. The psychopath wants only one, the, the narcissist wants only one thing, attention. Yes, please go ahead. Fascinating. And I, I'm thinking about some people I know in my own life and some of the clients that I work with and they're, the people they deal with. And I mean, I can see the clear distinction there. And I think that's, that's really enlightening, actually, Sam, to, to hear it put that way. What about where there are where the lines are blurred, where there are lies not about the story or the world they're living in, but just consistent lies, you know, and criminal behavior from, you know, because I think like deception for uh, is is big for both, right? So the deception then can go through to fraud and and you know, there's a fine line there, obviously. And I think in some people that may be, you know, what they, they do a bit of both. Where do they fit in? You're talking about malignant narcissists. Malignant narcissists are psychopaths. They are psychopaths who happen to be, who are comorbid, who happen to be also narcissists. So that's where these behaviors come from. The classic purebred overt narcissist doesn't lie. He simply fantasizes. And then he introduces you into his fantasy and then he wants you to believe his fantasy the same way he does. And it's totally surrealistic, it's nightmarish. The malignant narcissist is very much like the psychopath. He has the, all the, all the, he has the best of both worlds. He has all the bad aspects of the narcissist. And then he leverages the strategies, coping mechanisms and tactics of the psychopath in order to realize the goals of the narcissist. So it's a really, really seriously bad combination. So where does the, you, sorry, where does the line come then from malignant narcissist to psychopath? Ma malignant narcissist and psychopath? Yeah. A malignant narcissist is dependent on attention. Actually, he uses psychopathic techniques and tactics to obtain attention. So his orientation is still very much narcissistic. It's about attention. But he he he's, he becomes psychopathic when he pursues sources of narcissistic supply, when he pursues or tries to secure supply, he is then completely psychopathic. And so this is what people are exposed to, and there's there's a, a lot of confusion. Criminal activity, for example, is characteristic in the vast majority of cases of malignant narcissists and psychopaths, but not of classic narcissists. Fascinating. Okay, that that's really interesting, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, thank you for explaining that. You said there was also confusion around gaslighting. So explain that to me, because that's a word that I know I've used, and I know you know this is something that's almost mainstream. You'll hear it on the, even the news on a daily basis, right? So so explain a little bit more about that if you can, Sam. Gaslighting gaslighting is actually a clinical term. Um, it's been in use since at least the 1970s or 80s. And in order to qualify as gaslighting, the behavior 
must satisfy two conditions. Number one, that there is premeditation, intention to deceive and disorient by casting your judgment of reality in doubt on a constant repetitive basis as a strategy. So premeditation is crucial. Second thing, there has to be a power asymmetry. There is no gaslighting between equal partners. There has to be some power asymmetry, a boss and an employee, a teacher and a student. There has to be a power asymmetry to qualify as gaslight. Now, the only type of personality who, engage, who engages regularly in gaslighting is the psychopath. The psychopath premeditates intentionally, malevolently, plans and executes a plan of action to cause you to doubt your own sanity in order to obtain some goal. And by doing this, the psychopath positions himself in a superior, as, as your superior in some way. He creates a power asymmetry. This is not the case with narcissists. That's why narcissists don't gaslight. Narcissists confabulate. And confabulation is a totally different dynamic. Confabulation has two causes. One, when there is a massive fantasy defense, a fantasy life. Narcissists are not with us. They are creatures of fantasy. They are a daydream writ large. They, they're pity pants, you know? And so, and they want you to validate their fantasies. They want you to tell them that they are not fantasizing. So they're confabulated. They, they tell you stories and then they come to believe these stories. And then they get very angry if you disbelieve the stories or challenge them. And the second element in confabulation, so this is the first element, fantasy life. And the second element in confabulation is memory gaps. The main reason the narcissist confabulates is that he has a process called dissociation, which by the way, the psychopath does not have. Dissociation means that the narcissist has gaps of memory. In trying to bridge these gaps of memory, the narcissist creates plausible or probable narratives. So the narcissist had a fight with you and then he forgets all about it. And then you confront him an hour later and you tell him what you said to me was not nice. It was not friendly. And he says, what are you talking about? And then he says to himself, am I, am I being forgetful again? Let me think what might have happened, what could have happened, what plausibly had happened, what probably had happened. And then he creates this story about what had happened. And then he believes in it. And then he tells you, I wasn't fighting with you. I was arguing with you. And you said, no, but you were fighting with me. You threw a plate at, my, at me. And he said, that's not true. I never throw objects because he believes his stop-gap confabulation. He has no memory of the event. That's the difference between narcissists and psychopaths. So when you have a malignant narcissist and you're dealing with that situation where you've had an argument and you go back an hour later and they're telling you it didn't happen the way that you remember it, how does that work for them? A malignant like narcissist, for all intents and purposes, is a psychopath. So right. everything I said about psychopaths applies to a malignant narcissist. So that's he would lie. He would lie, and he knows that he's lying. Right. And he, pre he 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 has a plan of a plan on, on how to destabilize you. 
and is intent on reducing you to dependency so that in order to gauge reality, you would have to refer to him. You would ask him, did this really happen? Do you remember it the way I do? Do you agree with me? And so on. So he becomes what we call your reality testing. You, he, and he does it coercively. He cuts you off family. He cuts you off friends. He isolates you. And he becomes your only conduit and channel to the world. Your dependency is total, Edith. And do they, so I mean, a lot of my clients would have found themselves, and a lot of people listening will have found themselves in that situation, and they won't have seen it from the beginning. They won't have noticed necessarily. They'd have gone in thinking, this is an amazing relationship. They make me feel incredible. Um, that term love bombing, um, where you are put on that pedestal. Um, but there's always warning signs, Sam, aren't there, that you could pick up on. What, what would you say that people listening to this need to be aware of? When they're getting into a relationship like they that. actually they actually don't need either your question or, or my answer people are perfectly aware of the warning signs and from the very minute from the very first minute they deny they repress they ignore because they're very lonely because they're very needy because they're clingy because they're codependent because they're at a bad moment in their lives because they're in crisis because they're vulnerable for a variety of psychodynamic reasons People simply wouldn't see the truth, wouldn't face reality. But there is an abundance of information, abundance of red lights and warning signs from the very first minute of an encounter with a narcissist and psychopath. Contrary to a lot of mythology online, narcissists don't bother to act. Psychopaths don't bother to act. They hold you in such contempt you don't deserve the effort. They are who they are. They're proud of who they are. And they think who they are puts them in a superior position to the rest of humanity. They are the next stage in evolution. They are Homo sapiens 2.0. Why would they bother to demean themselves by pretending to be someone else? They're very, they're very arrogant and so on. This conceit leads them to expose their hand very early on. If you're attentive, and if you're not hell-bent into finding a partner, which many people are. And so the warning signs are a multitude. For example, does he treat other people, especially inferior people, ostensibly inferior people, service providers such as waiters or cabbies, does he treat them badly, ostentatiously so? Does he tell you what to do? Like don't go now, or where are you going? Or let me, uh, let me uh, tell you what to eat. He, he, he makes the choices you know, the, in, the, in a restaurant. Does he take over in a way? Give me your keys, I will drive, and so on. That's a bad sign. He doesn't respect your boundaries. Is he, um, uh, is he insolently inquisitive like, he owns you, you're his property. So he's, he has a right for full disclosure instantly, like first minute. Does he criticize you passive aggressively, subterraneanly, you know, under the radar or openly, overtly? Is he, does he kind of offer unsolicited advice about your life, your relationship, your past, your future? 
does he mold and shape you in the first meeting? He, should, he, he tells you, you should be this, you should do this. You're very good at this. Now, a lot, a lot of the narcissist misbehavior is disguised or camouflaged as altruism, is doing it for your own good. It's tough love. He is just, he's just directing you. He's trying to help you. He's being solicitous and supportive, provides you with succor. He's, he's all there for you. But it's a takeover. It's a hostile takeover. Before you know it, by the end of the first dinner, you are his in every sense of the word. And you begin to walk on eggshells within 15 minutes. You, you begin to pay attention to his verbal and nonverbal cues. You begin to mind your, your words. You begin to kind of position your body in a, def in a defensive way. You begin to think to yourself, should I do that? Or how is it going to react? These are, these are warning signs. It's not normal. It's abnormal. Something is wrong there. The narcissist converts you into an object and then annexes you, internalizes you. I call this process snapshotting. He makes you an internal object. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit stunned here because it's almost like you, you have been part, I'm sure listeners are thinking, oh my goodness, is Sam being like watching my life and watching what's happening because this is exactly what happens. And I love that. Well, I love it, but it's chilling. But those words, hostile takeover is exactly, exactly spot on. That's exactly what it what it feels like. Uh, I know Nigella Lawson over here, she's um, a celebrity chef, she said about having an intimate terrorist. And I think Again, those you know, that's what it really feels like if you're living it. I know people listening and watching will be you know, resonating with this in a quite a chilling way, but it, it will make make a lot of sense. So, so for the malignant narcissist, are they consciously aware of the strategy that they're playing out here from day one when they meet you? First of all, to clarify, malignant narcissists are only three percent of narcissists. It's a tiny minority the overwhelming number of narcissists are not malignant. They are either overt or covert. All narcissists are grandiose. It's wrong to say that there is a grandiose narcissist and a covert narcissist. They're all, they're all grandiose. But some are overt and some are covert. Malignant narcissists or psychopathic narcissists are 3% only. The malignant narcissist, yes, of course, is a strategy of taking over you, your life, your finances probably, your free time, your, he, he annexes you. All narcissists, even malignant narcissists, convert you into an internal object. They, they interact with the internal object, not with you. And they try to coerce you to conform to this internal object. Anytime you deviate or diverge from the internal object, they punish you. And ultimately, if you are autonomous and independent, and if you have agency, and if you insist on having a life, the divergence is unbridgeable, and the narcissist begins to devalue you in order to get rid of you, because the narcissist discard you. The narcissist values his internal objects much more than he values his external objects, you. And he values his internal objects more because, as I said at the beginning, he lives in fantasy. He has a fantasy life. So... The narcissist consists of a mind, he's inside his mind. You don't exist really. You're an excuse to form an internal object. 
and then in, I call it snapshotting. So he makes a snapshot of you, and then he photoshops the snapshot. This process is called idealization. He photoshops you. And then you look like nothing. I mean, the, the Photoshop snapshot looks nothing like you. The gap is enormous. And so you can't win this game. You can't, there's no winning strategy with the Nazi. He's going to devalue and discard you in any case. There is a reason for this. It's called separation individuation. I'm not going into this. But, and, and if you're very interested in online, I have a series of talks with Richard Rannon and others on, on, on this topic. But the narcissist is compelled, it's a compulsion to separate from you ultimately. One of the main reasons is that you refuse to become inert. You refuse to become dead. You refuse to become an object. Most people, not all. Yeah. And then he has to get rid of you because you challenge his internal world, the coherence and cohesion and functioning of his internal space depends on you being dead. He wants you dead, at least emotionally, if not otherwise. Um, wow. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's hard to hear, but I, you know, for, because I know so many people listening would have been there and it does feel ultimately like you're fighting against something that's impossible because when you're living in those relationships, you feel like you're the only sane person in the asylum because a lot of people around you won't see what you see a lot of this is behind closed doors so to the to everybody else so friends family work colleagues you know when they show up with you it they're the life and soul or they're just very charismatic easy to get along with so that again can cause even more confusion within the victim of this is this what this is this is because only intimacy triggers these dynamics in the narcissist so it's not the narcissist's fault, so to speak. It's intimacy triggers him. The narcissism is a post-traumatic condition. It's the narcissist is a child, a traumatized child, severely traumatized child. And so he's triggered, like every traumatized person is triggered. And the narcissist's ability to bond with you is because you're traumatized too. He's traumatized, you're traumatized, your siblings in trauma. You, you love each other because you share trauma. Am I it's not traumatized because I'm in the relationship though? Sorry? Am I not traumatized from being in the relationship? The fact that you selected a narcissist as your mate would be a strong indication that you have some unresolved trauma in your own past. Not necessarily, not necessarily, but in many cases. And the, I mean, the narcissist, I, 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 the narcissist if, I, if I may just complete the, the thought, the narcissists have two, two, two winning strategies to attract intimate partners. Either the narcissist shares a trauma with you. The narcissist comes to you and says, I'm also wounded. You're wounded. I'm wounded. I'm going to love you the way your mother should have loved you. I'm going to idealize you. I'm going to love bomb you. I'm going to, I'm going to give you unconditional love. And I'm going to let you love yourself through my eyes, through my gaze. That's strategy number one. So I'm going to heal your trauma. I'm going to, to kind of cure the wound, the archaic wound, that's a clinical term. This is the first strategy. And it works with, with intimate partners who were traumatized as children as well, but they chose a different strategy. They became 
codependence, or they became borderlines. The narcissist and the borderline, the narcissist and the codependent, it's, a, it's trauma bonding. It's a sharing of trauma. That's strategy one. There's a second strategy, though. If, if a narcissist comes across an intimate partner who is perfectly healthy, has been raised properly and normally, never experienced trauma, what he does then, he gives her access to his wounded child. He provokes in her the maternal instinct. So, and that applies, by the way, to men as well in same-sex relationships. It doesn't matter. He, he gives access to the wounded, crying, terrified, traumatized child in him. There is such a child in every narcissist. And then he exposes the child to you. And no one can resist this. It's irresistible. We have an instinct, men and women alike, to protect crying, wounded children, to, to cosset them, to contain them, to hold them, to hug them, to help them, to cure them, to save them, to fix them. In other words, the narcissist provokes in you the savior fixer complex. So these are the two strategies. Either you are my partner in trauma, or you will be my mother and you will heal me because I'm just a baby. I'm just a crying baby. And you need to lift me off the floor and fix me and save me. Wow. Okay. That's never heard it put like that before, but suddenly certain things are slotting into place for me. And I'm sure lots of people are listening here. I mean, it, it's interesting. And so what you're saying then, maybe tell me if I'm right or wrong here, is that you're not born with you're not born a narcissist. That's something that happens due to a trauma in childhood. That's it for today's episode. To listen to the next part of this interview with Sam Batman, do tune in to my next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sarah's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com, where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness.